five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hey, space enthusiasts. My guest this week is Bessie Schwartz, the CEO and co-founder of Cloutus Street, a company that uses satellite imagery and other data to come up with better flood models for customers like governments and insurance companies. Hence, it is an example of the use of space technology for something useful right here on Earth, which is something we always like. Please enjoy my conversation with Bessie. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. And just some final things before we start the episode about ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. If you want us help, expand our work, you can do so and support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. And we'll also put that link in the episode notes. And lastly, you can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Hey, welcome back, everybody. It's time for another episode. And I'm really thrilled because this episode is about what we would call the downstream market. And since we're a non-technical podcast, let me quickly remind you, downstream is basically as opposed to upstream. Upstream would be stuff like hardware, rockets, satellites, satellite constellations. Downstream is basically a lot about using space data, and it could also be space communications, but let's say space data, in order to achieve useful things right here on Earth. And in that vein, we have Bessie Schwartz here, the CEO and co-founder of cloud to street Welcome, Bessie. It's great to be here. Great. It's great to have you. Bessie, should we start as usual? And I'm going to ask you to give us the sort of one or two minute elevator pitch on cloud to street please. Yeah, sure thing. Well, it's pretty simple. So cloud to street is really the authority on tracking flooding globally um, and in near real time using all remote methods, primarily satellites, but actually not exclusively satellites. And essentially what we're doing is just scanning the earth every day to look for any kind of unusual water um, and any severe water. And then we take that living map of flooding back in time in order to understand patterns of flood risk as they're changing for virtually any pixel on earth, which enables us to also look forward into future flood risk without any ground equipment equally accurately everywhere around the world. We've been um, actually developing this as science for almost 10 years. My uh, co-founder and I uh, have been working together going on our 10-year anniversary mm -hmm. um, and started originally in partnership with Google. But today we've been partnering primarily with the public sector in about 28 countries around the world, mm -hmm. mostly helping with um, search and rescue, disaster management, risk reduction, and with global insurers and reinsurers around the world in order to offer uh, what's called parametric flood insurance mm. in order to cover uh, lots of uncovered flood risk out there to meet it with a financial social safety net that it doesn't have today as flood risk grows and uh, and chases. Um, the, we, 
Interestingly enough, on this podcast, while really a lot of our roots are in remote sensing and satellites, we consider ourselves a flood intelligence platform and a, a climate insurance platform. And we actually today leverage a lot of terrestrial data, including um, physically based uh, models, um, uh, gauges that are hooked up on IoT, and lots of information on the ground in order to inform the AI intelligence that we're using in order to detect floods around the world. And that's what gives us a continuous flood map um, and fills all gaps that are left behind by the direct observations. And really happy to, to get into that. Um, mm -hmm. But I think the thing that I'm really proudest of in many ways is that today we're monitoring through governments uh, on the platform of almost 400 million people who are vulnerable around the world uh, and the um, public sector it has really helped upgrade, especially in places that are the most climate vulnerable around the world, and now are enabling people by the hundreds of thousands in order to get access to insurance that they were never able to have before. We believe that this is mm -hmm. truly an essential layer um, if we're going to adapt to the amount of climate shocks that are coming. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's great. That's a lot to unpack here. But let me first ask you, Do it. How, how did you decide to do this? I mean, I don't mm. know, did you like grow up in New Orleans and Katrina hit or is there some sort of story behind it or why, why floods? Yeah. Um, well, floods, so at a, at a very high level, floods are the worst uh, climate shock. They're the worst natural disaster. Um, they're actually uh, more than all other disasters combined in terms of the amount of economy exposed and the number of people impacted. Uh, so you have stack fires, landslides, earthquakes all on top of each other. You don't meet the amount of threat that flooding presents to the global economy and people around the world. Um, and so when we looked at that and then we looked at how relatively for the size of the problem inaccurate uh, flood data is today, I'll go into that in a second, it was quite obvious that this was the place to go disrupt. Um, but um, we, my co-founder and I really understood this problem uh, uh, firsthand before we um, began a journey to, to build this new method and science around it. Um, my background was um, working on policy with climate vulnerable communities in the U.S., primarily okay. uh, in Midwest and in Florida, um, kind of all over the country. And I really saw, this is going back a long time ago, I really saw firsthand what it meant for a community, a business, an economy, uh, to not have the information that they needed in order to help just reduce the amount of risk they have today or get capital after a disaster. My co-founder was working in a very different context, but had a very similar realization. She was in uh, international in El Salvador uh, doing um, field work when a major hurricane hit a couple of her field sites and communities in those sites were left off of disaster aid lists because they weren't predicted to be in the flood path. And then because of local corruption, they didn't have the information to fight back and say, we deserve to be on these lists. So we both knew what it meant to not have access to this kind of information when we uh, went to went to Yale. Uh, long story short, Google basically came to Yale, Yale 
while Beth and I were learning the more um, traditional disaster um, modeling methods and showed an extremely early version of Google Earth Engine, which I'm sure your audience knows about. But this was like no error messages basically. And it was like right when they had really done it and they were essentially asking Yale professors to start writing papers at the planetary scale. But Beth and I really saw from that that a new way was possible for uh, disaster science um, that we suddenly could analyze uh, anywhere on Earth and have accurate data in the communities I had worked with, the communities she had worked with, and everywhere else around the world. Okay. So walk us through the um, product a little bit. So you basically, you know, you're you're basically building a model, if I understood mm -hmm. correctly. Yeah. Right? And this is a model to, is it, is it to predict the risk of flooding or to assess the damage post an event or both? Yeah, so we do the full, what's called the full disaster cycle. Mm -hmm. um, so there's the before the event happens, just where's the risk um, in my community? How risky is my home across my country? Right before the event happens, it, where is it going to go? Do we need to you know, take evacuate, take some clear action while it's happening, uh, response, and then uh, recovery. So we provide information for the full disaster cycle. Um, and we do that. It's a different version of the technology, but in many ways, the same underlying uh, approach or, or methods. Um, before the event, we have flood risk maps that are all direct observation based. They're all from just looking at where floods have been over time. Uh, and then we can use that to predict likelihood of floods going forward for different areas um, around the world. Um, that is fundamentally different than the traditional way of modeling flood risk. Um, just to give um, listeners kind of a sense of it, the traditional way, which is a very good science, and we like deeply respect uh, the uh, our colleagues who do traditional hydrology. Uh, what they do is put ground equipment all throughout a watershed, um, get the uh, the stream gauge, uh, the stream levels over time, get the elevation, and yeah. then force simulate water through that in a couple of different scenarios just to see where, where water would flow in the event of different types of flooding. Um, it can be very, very good, but it's highly dependent on that information that's going into the model uh, being accurate. If you don't know that actually the city changed its sewage system and the drainage system over here is a little bit different, you're going to predict the water uh, flows in a different way than it does. We don't care about any of that. We just look at where the water has been over time uh, and use that direct observation as a way to understand how the watershed is changing and where things have actually been. And so our approach to flood risk has been proven to be more accurate for some kinds of flooding than the traditional model. We actually see it very much as in complement. But that's used for the disaster management or disaster risk reduction part of um, disaster, the yeah. disaster response. We then uh, turn the um, you know, forward-looking mode into what we do that's able to say, where floods are about to be. Um, we have a couple of different versions of that. We're very excited to launch a new version in the U.S. pretty soon, actually. Yeah. Uh, and then we have just the direct monitoring of where things are happening. And what we're doing there is just looking for flooding and then overlaying that with assets that the government or the insurer or the corporate yeah cares about and alerting them uh, to what's going on. We have a dashboard. They can watch the floods as they're happening. Um, and then in recovery, it's really looking at things like, are the farms, um, have the farms been able to replant? Um, are the uh, roads still blocked and damaged and, 
and things like right. that. Right. So let me maybe use a specific example and, and, and one that I know well. So I'm originally from Germany and I'm, you know, as you obviously know, because of what you're doing, we had these absolutely horrendous yep. floods. I think yep. it's about a couple of years ago, right? Um, it, it even cost the potential chancellor, I think, the election because he was seen laughing at the flood flooding site, but that's a different story. Yeah. <laughs> horrendous <laughs> floods that people don't know. It happened in the middle of Germany. I think they killed like hundreds of people. I mean, it was an mm-hmm. absolute it was an absolute shock event because people were like, why is this, how can this happen in one of the most developed nations in the world? Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of bringing this back to your work, was this, for example, was this bad modeling? Was this like modeling was good, but people were having homes in like reckless locations or kind of what was your view if you have one of like what, what happened in that specific example? Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know that specific example. Um, I know I'm much more familiar with the floods that happened um, last summer because we were helping um, uh, some of our uh, customers respond to those. Um, but, you know, when we talk about flooding, um, we're actually talking about many different things. So mm-hmm. a riverine or river overbank happens in a very different way than sea surge um, or hurricane or just heavy downpour or a dam breaks or there's some kind of human intervention that leads to a massive amount of water. So Mm -hmm. it could be a variety of different things. And some of these are much easier to predict um, than than others. Uh, For instance, a a human intervention failing couldn't be, that's not a hydrologic uh, uh, driven uh, event um, in, in many ways. So depending on what it was, um, it could have been more less easy to, to predict, um, which then drives to the question of were people in dangerous places and could that have been predicted and what is actually yeah. bad zoning? And I will tell you that, so we, we released a paper that was on the cover of Nature about a, a year and a half ago that looked at direct observations of flooding over the past um, several decades in order to understand trends of flood exposure and how it's been evolving. And not surprisingly, we found a huge trend, like a, a lot more flood risk growing pretty steeply. We actually found uh, about 86 million more people had been ex- were exposed to floods than had been previously known. Models mm. had left out these 86 million people wow that had been experienced by floods. But really interestingly, that was driven fairly equally by changes in the floodplain, the floodplain growing, mm-hmm. and humans moving into the floodplain. So okay. we're actually experiencing really both right now. Um, and it's not just climate change that's increasing the amount of just present day uh, disaster risk we have. And so to come back to kind of your question here in, in Germany, in many ways that gives me a lot more hope than, um, uh, than, <laughs> than you might think is that we have it in our control through good disaster management to greatly reduce the amount of risk that we have today. So we'd have to take a look at the exact example that we're looking at here, or more likely what I would want to do is look at every flood in Germany, which we've done over time, and then take a look at comparing, like, is there um, unplanned or even planned poor development in places where we know it's going to flood again? Because that's interesting. I mean, how do you sense this sort of the I guess, public awareness of that, because yep. if I understand correctly, probably your, your models, you could probably, I don't know if you have this, but it sounds like even like I could type in a zip code and it, te- it would tell me like, well, if you buy a house there, that's risky, less risky. And, you know, I've bought many properties in my life and I must admit, I've actually never mm. done this or checked this even I think when I bought a property once in Miami Beach and I sort of in the back of my head thought, okay, maybe in 20 years, this might not be a good idea. But is this something that you can do right now? And is there a product? Are people using this sort of uh, for, for real estate purchases or real estate owners? Or Yeah, so we so Clyde Street primarily doesn't serve the general public or even um, 
um, small businesses. We B2B primarily B two G, I guess. Exactly, and 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 pretty large uh, versions. So we're we're mostly doing national governments. Um, we okay. do do large state governments as well, and large corporations that have a significant amount of climate risk or portfolios of uh, climate risk. So maybe a a collective of farmers or a bank that right. holds a lot of farmer risk. So. Okay. They'll come back to your question there because there are great folks out there that we really respect who do exactly what you're talking about. Okay. Um, Cloud to Street is really focused on the much larger kind of um, higher kind of commercial transaction level work um, where we're doing insurance policies that, that are you know sometimes tens of millions of dollars per, per for the premium um, okay. and operate really at a much deeper level within within that economy. Um, but there's a really great. Um, uh, organization, I believe it's a nonprofit called First Street Foundation that mm-hmm. does that um, leverages a lot of or built off of Fathom's flood map. It's um, a, a hydrology company we really respect. Um, yeah. They've inserted their flood risk, I believe they call it flood factor, into Zillow, which is a uh, okay real estate uh, website. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it Best really stuff. encourages people to consider um, flooding when making a home purchase. Okay, understood. Okay, so let's say, you know, I'm a, I don't know, a regional or national government mm. or sort of a corporate with a very large, yep. vulnerable, mm. potentially vulnerable real estate portfolio of warehouses or other production yeah, facilities. Exactly, or whatever. now you got it. <laughs> okay, good. Um, so I come to you, I come to Cloud Street, and, mm-hmm. and what do I actually buy? Is it sort of like a mm. subscription to a model? Is it sort of like a periodical report? Or is, mm. it, is, it, is it an actual insurance product? Are you guys actually doing insurance products yourself? Or what, what is it that I buy? Yeah, let's, so let's start with insurance. Um, so we work with insurers. We do not sell insurance directly ourselves. We're a data okay. platform um, or a, yeah, a, a market-wide data platform that the some of the largest insurers and reinsurance are using right now in order to transact what's called parametric insurance, which is a very different kind of insurance. It's where the insurance triggers based on a parameter having been detected rather than someone coming and appraising the damage of your property or your your asset. So we sell um, to all insurers, so it's market-wide, and they use our data set in order to price premiums so to um, actually structure the insurance policy for a uh, flood insurance for, you know, let's say a um, collective of farmers across an entire country, uh, they can say, okay, this is going to be you know, X, X premium for each of these uh, each of the farmers. Uh, and then once all of that's negotiated and the consumers are buying the policies, whether it's tons of farmers, thousands of farmers, or whether it's one government or one corporation, once that policy is in effect, we are then monitoring the uh, asset every day, usually for about three years or so. And that's usually about the length of the um, insurance policies that we see. Okay. And and so the insurance policies are done by your insurance partners. Yep. I guess one sort of, um, I guess, uh, interesting question on the strategy side is I have people, you know, I've spoken to people who thought about basically trying to do the insurance products themselves. Like obviously having an insurance company in the background because mm-hmm. for listeners who don't know insurances in most countries are very heavily regulated activity. Yep. Um, but I guess you could develop, in some countries it's called like, um, uh, like you can be a general agent 
an MGA is what you're thinking. Yeah, yeah. An MGA. MGA. It's like, yeah, I didn't want to use like the too much uh, acronyms, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, for your for your audience, a MGA is essentially where you can write insurance policies, but it's not your bank account. It's yes. the insurer's bank account. And so it's it's called using uh, someone else's paper, but it looks and feels to the uh, actually policyholder to the end customer, like you are there in insurer. So Lemonade is one that folks may be uh, familiar with here. Mm -hmm. um, we considered at, at the very beginning quite um, seriously becoming an MGA. Uh, so saying, okay, we have this data that can see flood more accurately in many ways, and we can most reliably detect floods around the world. So we're able to get huge amounts of flood risk covered under insurance, we should just go do that ourselves and keep more of a percentage of the, the premium. And then we um, really like looked around and at the analysis of what it would look like. And um, between us doing that versus us helping everyone, offering our data to everyone, enabling everyone to do parametric flood insurance. And there were two really concrete reasons. First is money. Like uh, we can just, there's much bigger of a market if we're going at the estimated about $140 billion uh, potential parametric uh, insurance market. And we're enabling everyone to transact or enter that market. And everyone is using this data set for it. So it's sort of like being um, something like Stripe, uh, where we enable a huge amount of value to happen. And we just take a small transaction fee for everybody who's doing like uh, Stripe, enabling um, transactions on the internet, and in this case, enabling flood uh, insurance. Yeah. The second reason is um, impact. So we are very much a Republic Benefit Corporation. We're driven quite a bit by the mission to make sure all communities are able to prepare and respond to climate disasters. Mm -hmm. And so we are um, very much focused on this mission. We think we can reach scale um, much more effectively, much more sustainably by enabling the kind of large uh, capital providers in the world in order to protect uh, and build this, the safety net that we need to um, really within the next 10 years or so. Okay. So, and what your, I guess, the benefits to the insurers and the communities, uh, I guess, is probably two, right? So by having more accurate data, uh, you're improving the pricing of insurance where it may already exist. And it sounds like you're also enabling insurance in regions, regions where it may not have existed before because the insurance companies weren't comfortable that it was enough data. Is, is that it? It's So it's much more the, the latter. You've hit it on okay. the nose with the latter. So we are not, well, well, in many ways, a parametric approach that we enable can be more transparent. It certainly can be faster. It has lots of advantages. We are not attempting to switch over the about $30 billion of um, flood insurance premium that's done with more traditional methods modeling, and then the person coming to your door. We're really focused on the 75% of flood losses that cannot be covered today around the world, and even in pockets in the US and Europe where there's a fairly robust uh, uh, flood insurance uh, market. And so when we come to an insurer, we're saying, um, this is all going after a new revenue. We're not yeah. a new cost for you. This isn't a cheaper way of, uh, you know, yeah. doing, new a, doing the new same ocean. thing. Yeah. yeah, this is all going after and expanding your market um, and getting uh, lots of good flood risk out there and important flood risk out there that you just can't access through the traditional means. Okay, so I would interpret that. So you're probably less likely to operate, let's say, in, I don't know, Florida or something. Correct. Um, Okay. 
<laughs> that was an easy guess, I guess. And then, <laughs> on, on, on the other side, is there sort of, I don't know, like one or two sort of like interesting examples of new regions your methodology opened up? Yeah, and, and so I should say we're not interested in, let's say, homeowners insurance in, in Florida. Uh, it really is the convergence of yeah. we don't do this sort of much, much smaller, more um, disaggregated level of risk where you're really dependent on marketing and selling and distribution and then really competitive markets where, frankly, there's a huge amount of already correlated risk for insurance customers in those locations. But we would be, and actually are in conversation about doing um, uh, a lot of different kinds of insurance in the Gulf Coast. Uh, and this is mostly um, doing um, hurricane, uh, adding a flood layer into an already existing hurricane, which is a fairly robust uh, parametric uh, insurance market today, but is all done based on wind. So when you buy a parametric hurricane, it's all wind damage, which is important. But the last several um, major hurricanes primarily have led to damage from water, not from wind um, or, or rainfall. And so that's the layer that we add. So we do do um, large sort of municipalities or corporates in some of those environments, which just do not have the theme here is that we go after and help with things that are just not done today or not possible today. Um, so that is that um, what I just described there is a sort of ideal case for us. It would be again be large corporations or kind of large um, policies. Um, we also are doing um, one of our favorite things to do is um, a national level insurance, so sovereign, either in the form of direct insurance policies that would be held by the national government. Um, so in the, the U.S., the um, the National Flood Insurance Program has a reinsurance that's triggered in a similar way. And then in many of the countries that are using our platform for disaster management are now also being um, brokered or sold uh, flood insurance on the same technology that they're using for disaster management. They're using our platform for what they normally would be doing. And then uh, insurers can offer payouts when those major disasters happen using the exact same data uh, that we have. And this can be done in two different ways. One, a direct policy payout. So what you'd normally be used to, a major event happens like that flood in Germany you were just talking about, and then the German government gets an immediate large influx of cash triggered automatically. So basically within a week or less, they would get this amount of money and that would power all the things you need to do in order to protect your citizenry and bounce back quickly. The second form is, I think, extremely interesting, and that's in the form of debt relief. This is really important for countries that I think are extremely vulnerable to climate change and um, have less borrowing power. So um, this is where similar thing, we detect a national event happens based on some predetermined parameter. And then instead of getting the actual cash, they just get their loans um, uh, relieved in part or in full. So they don't have to choose then between going further into debt or defaulting and doing a response. Um, oh, okay. I assume those would be loans not with uh, private lenders, but with like IMF or something like that, right? It can be no, both, actually. Really? Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so I guess that means you guys are not only operating in, in the US. Have you done deals with sort of like Mm. Like other countries, other sovereigns, or yeah, absolutely. So we're um, a fully global company. The um, the platform is fully accurate everywhere on Earth. Um, and then we've always been global. Our first, the first country we worked with was India. Well, I guess the first country was the the U.S. And then uh, the second was India. And we've been um, all over the world since then. 
Okay. And just coming back to the parametric part, I forgot to ask, but now you've talked about things like, you know, uh, winds and, 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 yep. and versus flats and so forth. I mean, what is actually the typical sort of parametric trigger you use? Is it sort of like water, like mm -hmm. rain, I don't know, rainfall, water levels, uh, wind speed, a combination? Yeah. So we use a combination of things. So the, the primary thing and the thing that is really we found is the most um, reliable, so the most correlated with damage, and that correlation between your parameter and damage is the, the most important thing when doing parametric uh, insurance. Um, we just look at water on the ground. So it'll be something like a fractional flooded um, area for the jurisdiction. So let's say it's a farm or a municipality or an entire country done by county or, or something like that. So we just look at actual observed water on the ground. Did the event visibly happen? Um, we will add in all kinds of what's called second triggers or a blended trigger. That will be other um, so uh, you could say rainfall, wind, all these other elements. Um, frankly, those are a little bit they're easier to monitor than the direct floods on the ground, but they're incredibly useful as backups um, and for certain kinds of terrain where the direct observation may have a, a gap in looking at the flood. Okay. And so your models, are they based on, it sounds like they're based on a, probably a combination of historical data where it's available and then sort of like you said ongoing observation yeah exactly so um what we do is basically harness a whole bunch of different satellites that are circling the earth all the time and it's actually really important that we have for the sake of insurance primarily we use orbiting satellites because we know that insurer really needs to know this is going to look at this spot at the same time every day. They, they reliability in many ways more than um, accuracy in, in, in some ways. Um, so we're generally using a, a variety of just orbiting um, satellites um, yeah. and then fusing them together and going um, uh, back in time to look at the likelihood that an event has happened in that location. That's what we use for pricing. So the uh, insurers we work with actually care less about the maps themselves and the resolution and all of that. What they really need to focus on is the probability curves yes, of an sure. event, and that's how we set the trigger. And so I do think this is something I feel strongly sometimes about the space industry world. I love it in many ways is kind of my original home. We need to think about the mode in which our actual customers are consuming information, because while we yes. love maps, they might not even care about maps, even if they are providing the information. Our users just want pretty boring statistics I mean, I think they're exciting, but boring statistics and an API that, you know, they can yeah. tap into with a CSV at the end, pretty simple table at the end of the day. So that's what we um, um, are providing to them um, in order to structure the policies. And then what we do is set trigger levels. So they want to pay out or relieve the debt when X has happened, this much water is detected, et cetera. And we uh, set that. And then we're just sending them the CSV every day to say, this is the level in these locations. And when we hit a trigger level, then we kind of activate. We uh, Here's the payout, it's ready to pay out now. Yeah. And you, you hit on a point, which is, you know, very close to my heart. I find very important, which I sometimes describe it. I feel like there is still a lot of, let's call it friction between space data and how it can be made useful on Earth. Completely. And so friction in, in various ways. So let me ask you about your experience. Yeah. <laughs> One level of friction could be sort of like, okay, so you work, you probably work for several satellite providers, I'm guessing. Yep, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's government, uh, obviously EO, EO satellites, there's then uh, commercial providers like, you know, Planet yep. or Satellogic and so forth. Love them all. Exactly. You love them all. So you kind of, the first thing is you have to like fuse probably a ton of data. Mm -hmm. um, is yep. that, do, do you find that that's 
ops easy enough at the moment or could it be easier or how is that experience of like working with space data and yeah, um, using technically, a process? Yeah. Technically or um, uh, just working the, the creating the, the relationships to well, I'm, sure, I'm, I'm hoping, well, I don't know. I'm hoping creating the relationships that the, the let's say the commercial companies are probably happy to sell. I, I meant mm. more so technically sort of like, okay, you know, how do I get the data, the space data and feed it into my model? Is that, um, is that a relative? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it, it's certainly difficult. I guess the reason I'm kind of we've been we've been at this for a really long time. Um, <laughs> you've suffered um, through it already. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And of course, you're always um, upgrading. And I actually think uh, you know we we started the Beth, my co-founder, and I started doing this in I mean, really in like 2013 or so. So it's like kind of um or not. It was, I think, really as I think planetary scale and cloud computing was really meeting the large repositories of mm -hmm. um, government um, data. Uh, but there have been massive strides, I think, since then have made it um, uh, possible. And I think the computer vision, like the leaps we've made in computer vision and AI applied to satellite imagery, um, have been, um, I think, huge in terms of increasing accuracy and our ability to fuse and, I think, get more scientific quality information out of uh, satellites. And so, yeah, it's, cer it's certainly very difficult. Um, and we're really proud of the work that our team has done. Um, and um, I think that kind of the switching, uh, sort of having everything in uh, computer vision has made it possible to do a lot more than we've ever been able to do before. Okay. And then I guess, so the other point of friction, which a lot of um, companies then I was struggling with companies that want to use space data to do something useful on earth like you guys are doing is that it, it requires a certain level of let's call it um interdisciplinary um competence oh, yeah. because you need to on one hand for example you need to understand okay uh okay i need data from space okay who's yeah. providing what kind of sensors are there what, what yeah. kind of yeah how do i fuse yeah. that and then on the other on the other end it's sort of like okay i want to sell to for example insurance companies okay well how do i talk to an insurance company yeah and... totally absolutely yeah i think you've hit the nail on the head in in many ways of where i think the industry should and frankly is starting to really go um and that's kind of deep verticalization and i'm by deep i mean all the way from deeply understanding the remote sensing science all the way to um getting really deeply embedded into the workflows, the mental models of all of the industries that um, can benefit from Earth observation information. So just sticking on the technical side, you need a massive amount of interdisciplinary technical um, expertise just to even make sense of the data and create something new. Um, we always say, you know, it's really not that hard to make one somewhat accurate flood map. Um, in fact, we provide the largest database of free flood maps for free and open. Um, that's just on our site um, because you know one map of that German flood or one map of Hurricane Katrina is actually fairly easy. What's really difficult is doing it accurately every day in any location such that you can rely on it for underwriting or critical search and rescue, things like that. And that really requires not just understanding satellite data, so remote sensing scientists, um, but understanding the underlying phenomena that you're analyzing. So we have a lot of hydrologists on our team yeah. 
were trained in modeling and then moved over to sort of machine learning. And they're telling us like what we're actually looking at. And then we have uh, machine learning experts who know how to take both of those things and actually run fantastic models on that. And then obviously we have um, other types of scientists. So that's just on the technical side of things. Mm -hmm. And then on the um, other side, we have um, folks who come from the insurance industry um, who frankly had been brokering parametric or designing and underwriting parametric policies for years and just got sick of not being able to write policies or broker policies for their customers for the largest peril out there. We're just sort of all sitting around covering insurance, knowing that it's only ever going to be half of all the catastrophes if we can't more accurately cover um, flooding from parametric, parametric means. And so we have folks who are kind of meeting on the other side and they had the problem that we are ultimately trying to serve. And we've got folks on the, the government side um, as well. And it, it really is a kind of a coming together and um, mm -hmm. and really learning from one another in order to create a, something that's fundamentally new. Right. And then when you talk to the insurance customers, I mean, do you even mention that the space stuff? Because I mean, some part of me feels sometimes it's better not to not even mention it because it may scare people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, we have, so we don't actually find that insurers are scared of the satellites, but we do find it actually can be a distraction, as you're saying, in, in many ways. Um, and the, the really the important thing with insurers is you can't you can't pull the wool. I mean, the folks we work with are incredibly smart and incredibly good um, scientists, technical, and you can't, nor should you pull the wool over their eyes. We actually, it's a much, it's a pretty collaborative process when we first work with a new insurance company to help figure out the statistics they need, how they like to underwrite, the kinds of things they're underwriting. And so we'll spend two months, like really just scientist to scientist, um, working with them, taking their feedback. And um, they need to know everything that's going, going in there. But if you just stop with If you just handed the maps over, we would um, we wouldn't get where we we need to go. And so what we actually did over the last year was build actuarial tools on top of the um, remote sensing um, and the geospatial data that we have, which make it much easier to have these conversations um, with insurers. We kind of put it into the statistics that they need to see. It just happens to be a different type of data feed that's creating yeah. statistics. But then you, you you basically you speak their language, right? And um, you got 100%. Put into their business process. 100%. Explain yeah. how you add value specifically to their business. And yeah. some of that happens to come from space data, but kind of who cares from their point of view, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's just like this incredible new means to, to an end. But you have to stay focused on what the ultimate end value is for your customer. And if that happens to be the coolest, sweetest, new cutting edge model in CVPR, great. If it happens to be a much simpler, more boring thing, who cares? Like we just got to enable our users to do what they need to do. And it's sort of like the tried and true, like build it and they will come, create some exciting science and someone will surely want it. And, uh, And that doesn't recognize that even if they did want that thing that you built, maybe they wouldn't even understand what it is or appreciate because you're not um, enabling them to consume it in the way that makes sense for them. Yeah. So this this whole market, I mean, I mean, it's kind of funny or, or tricky because I guess you guys are opening, like you said, a whole lot of new markets in a way. Okay. Yeah. How big do you think this market can be? Sort of like rough order of magnitude. Yeah. So so taking the flood parametric market. We estimated to be about $140 billion dollars in terms of um, 
untapped premium today. Premiums. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's right. That would be specifically um, for parametric uh, that remote sensing methods uh, or remote satellite based methods can uh, uh, be most effective for. 140 billion of sort of additional premium that don't exist as revenue today. Correct. Okay. And how roughly how much revenue is there for existing flood insurance? Oh, today it's about 30 billion through traditional. Okay, so, wow. Okay. Yeah. So you're talking about sort of quadrupling more than quadrupling that, basically. Well, yeah, so today yeah. about 75% of flood losses are not covered. Like, so all damage from flooding just is not protected through uh, insurance. So it actually is the vast majority. Okay, and then you guys, in terms of for, for providing your, well, I was going to say your models, but really your insights, I guess I should mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are you guys, is it sort of, how does that work? Is it sort of like a flat fee or is it sort of like, do you, are you able to get sort of a percentage of premiums or how? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great, great question. You asked this earlier, actually. Um, so it's different for the, um, what we call risk holders right now, primarily governments and for the insurers who are transacting on top. So for um, the risk holders, it's a flat fee that's usually annual or they're buying multi-year over the course of many rainy seasons or, or hurricane seasons. So that's a much more typical business model in the geospatial industry. Um, it is um, a flat fee for all services um, and scales if there's a ton of data um, that is going into it. So generally that means extremely large um, areas. Um, but very simple. On the insurance side, very simple as well, but a totally different model. It's a percent of premium. Um, and that is really important for our uh, customers. And actually, it's a pretty unique thing that Cloud Street can offer because um, it is actually fairly, because we built this model already and because um, we rely, um, we use commercial imagery when needed, but we are able to spread that out quite a bit over the course of over the, our full customer base. And so the product is not that expensive to deploy, mm -hmm. which means that we can say, we're just doing a revenue share with insurers. So you go, you're going to go out, we're going to enable you to get all of this new revenue and we will win when you win, when you actually successfully you go that market. Yeah, so, yeah, we really see ourselves as building this new market that's, I think, just taking off alongside of the uh, insurance industry, the insurers, reinsurers, and brokers. Okay. So I guess you partly answered this question already because we were talking about the revenue sizes, but so how far along do you think Clartus Trees is in its potential journey? Sort of how, where do you see this journey going also in terms of, I don't know, potential additional products or product modifications? Um I guess, where, where do you see the company in five to 10 years, whatever the right time frame is? Yeah, I mean, so we've um, been around for a while because we really wanted to make sure that our science was um, not just um, well-validated, but was validated by the scientific community. So we published quite a bit in peer-reviewed journals. That was really important to us before we then went and, and scaled um, that said, you know, we're at the very beginning of our journey. Um, the, um, while well, we've been in, you know, we're really proud of everything we've done and we've really been proven to help governments around the world leapfrog into kind of modern day resilience that can handle climate shocks. The flood parametric market, which is the way to meet this crisis with capital, with critical cap disaster capital, that's really just starting to take off. And we're incredibly excited and going to be quite focused on that um, in the next, in the kind of a near term. But yeah, I think we're just at the very beginning of our, of our journey. Um, and we are dead focused 
uh, dead set focused on uh, building the climate adaptation market, um, period. We believe in many ways that the climate crisis is a financial crisis, that we actually do have the amount of money to fund the solutions and absorb the amount of risk that's just baked into the atmosphere mm. today. We're just not distributing it effectively to reduce risk and to provide the capital folks need to bounce back quickly rather than going into poverty or reducing the GDP of their of their government. And so we are focused over the long term on enabling all climate adaptation finance to happen um, globally through a variety of products like debt relief um, that we just mm -hmm. talked about, enabling uh, vulnerable countries to, um, to borrow in order to address this, to enable development capital to happen in a more effective and efficient way to enable buyouts to happen, even just in, in the US, you need to prove repeat flooding in order to um, get a buyout for the government to give you the money to rebuild and go to a less climate vulnerable place. We hope to do to, to provide products around that. And so we're you have our eyes set on a, a whole suite of uh, types of finance and then other resilience actions that climate and flood intelligence can enable in the next decade. When when you're looking at sort of what you're doing, where do you believe lies your greatest, um, let's call it competency? Is it sort of like, you know, it could be, I don't know, it could be proprietary data sources, but I mean, you're using, I guess, some satellite data, which anybody could buy. Is it sort of better modeling? Is it better trans, is it like translating the modeling into insights for the customers? Is it a bit of all of the above? Yes. It, so yeah, probably is a bit of all of the above. Um, and I'll point out a, a, a couple of things. So um, while um, we have the most advanced flood tracking algorithms for remote sensing, as I mentioned earlier, we're actually fusing that with a lot of non-satellite based mm -hmm. uh, data sources. And so taking advantage of the full suite of big data information we have about the earth now, and that continues to kind of deepen our technical mode uh, and what the just core uh, flood mapping technology is that that we, we have. Um, uh, behind a lot of that is the largest database of flood mapping in the world. So I, I mentioned that we released a portion of it for free. That is a tiny fraction of what we actually have. We've been collecting that for about six years um, through a variety of means, including uh, our government search and rescue uh, folks on the ground, helping detecting and doing ground truth data that you can't go back and ground truth the flood that happened three years ago. So we've got that that has enabled us to just train the best models. Um, and then um, I agree with you that just um, creating the tools, so the underwriting tools on top of our data layer, and then creating the instrument, the financial instruments alongside the insurance industry that's enabled us to embed ourselves deeply within this sector is, um, I think, a pretty huge advantage. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So in, in terms of, um, I mean, I think quite a few of our listeners are potential entrepreneurs. So another question that also <laughs> very often is about, you know, the, the whole financing side. Um, mm. I, I guess, um, luckily for you, you are um, different from some of the other companies on the podcast, like the, the upstream, the hardware companies, some mm. of them need a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least you probably need less money than them because, you know, you, you don't have, you don't not building satellites or rockets, but so how, how is the sort of the financing? How have you financed the business? Yeah. So um, we actually, uh, we're really proud that we bootstrapped the business for a really long time. Mm -hmm. um, and so the government work, we actually had, you know, Beth and I were, were um, uh, students um, and our kind of founding team member, Colin Doyle, is 
as well. We just had governments that were coming to us and basically saying, um, we don't have a robust hydromet system, or maybe our hydromet system got literally blown out. This hydrology meteorology, which is like rainfall and little like equipment throughout your watershed, got blown out and we haven't been able to rebuild, or it's going to take us many years to rebuild. Could you just map our country um, in the meantime? We'd be like, we'll set it up in a week. Um, so we said customers kind of coming to us because there was clearly such a need in countries all around the world. So we we bootstrapped that for a long time. Mm-hmm. Then um, about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, um, we felt like the flood parametric market was ready and we raised venture capital for a very specific reason. And that was to build the underwriting technology that I was just describing a little bit of before. And that took a a decent amount of resources, not as much as it would cost to launch a satellite into space, uh, but relatively a decent amount of resources in order to build this new type of science, these new tools. And so we um, raised that money and took about a year to build that technology and then emerged with a technology today that insurers are underwriting very large amounts of flood risk premium um, on top of. So um, we um, we actually, we we love our invest. I do think it's a, it's a topic that I could talk about for a time is finding the right investors for you, making sure that you're matching the expectations for the right moment yeah. of your business. But we're thrilled with the folks that we work with on the VC side. I'm, I, well, given I'm a VC as well, I'm sure we could talk for hours mm-hmm. about this, but let's... Mm-hmm. Let's maybe try to do it in two minutes. It's unfair. Okay, great. Let's do it. So one question I do want to ask you about is sort of like, yeah, because you brought in this question, who are the right investors? And again, sort of one of the mm-hmm. fascinating things about businesses like yours is that they have this interdisciplinary angle, right? So you could, oh, wow. yep. when, you draw, when you draw up your target investor list, right, you could have said, Part of your business, you're like, oh, let's mm-hmm. make yep. some Absolutely. base investors who know about the satellites. Oh, like, but really, we're mm-hmm. selling yep. companies. Let's go to p- investors who in- understand InsureTech. Or like, mm-hmm. oh, but it's a data product. Let's go to... Uh, yeah. If you guys thought about it in that way, like how did you guys think about it? Yeah, absolutely. We definitely thought about it as a portfolio of, of partners. Um, and so, um, and I, I think it's um, smart for insurers to, I mean, for, for um, uh, entrepreneurs to be thinking about really who's going to be around the table when things get a little bit tough or when there's big questions and who do you want mm. making those decisions with you or really, really importantly is telling you when there's a decision you didn't realize you had to make or something you needed to be aware of. And so we really thought of it as um, a portfolio. So um, the what we really prioritized during our seed round, which was led by Collaborative Fund, like a, a very experienced uh, seed fund, mm-hmm. just very successful at betting on early stage companies, not mm-hmm. a generalist fund that just knew kind of what does it take to get a company to the next level, to, from kind of potential idea to product market fit. And we really wanted just that generalist, like how do you build really good sustainable foundations for a business? So um, we were really excited about having that around the room. Uh, we really wanted InsureTech expertise, and there's a wonderful uh, fund that actually came in very early called Floating Point. That's the founding team from Oscar Health, and now uh, yeah. invests in all kinds of sophisticated insurance. Uh, and then um, Lower Carbon or Lower Case, which is the Lower Carbon is Chris Saka's um, mm-hmm. kind of climate specific mm-hmm. fund it was really important to us to have folks who were um, dead, like also very focused on the climate crisis and long-term wanted to invest in things that were solving this problem would help us direct towards that. Um, number of other folks on the run the room who are very good at understanding how to build um, 
technology moats around a business that are sustainable, that last for, for many years, how to recruit the right people, how to make sure the IP is protected, all of that. And like so many other challenges that we get around the room with, uh, uh, with the investors we have. Great. And so since we're unfortunately sort of uh, uh, coming to the end here and running short on time, let me ask you a few other sort of closing questions. I forgot to ask at the beginning, um, Cloud to Street, what's the story behind the name? Who came up with it? Why? Uh, yeah, um, the idea behind Cloud to Street is, I mean, first of all, that's how floods happen. But also Cloud to Street um, flipped the script on how floods are, mono or are analyzed. Rather than going from the street down using ground equipment, we started really in the wake of uh, the possibility that you could analyze disasters from the cloud down, which just meant it was much more accessible and made planetary scale resilience uh possible. Okay, cool. And where are you guys based? Uh, we're based half in New York and then half kind of all over. Okay, remote. Okay, terrific. Are you guys hiring right now? Um, we are hiring. Yes, we're primarily hiring, well, product positions. Um, so we're looking for a VP of product. Um, very excited. Any of your kind of audiences have startup experience and yeah. excellent product folks um, yeah. and a DevOps engineer. Okay, terrific. And then one question I always ask is, um, I, I know you're obviously super dedicated um, to Cloud to Street right now, and it, it really seems like a very fascinating an important business but if you were forced to do something else is that sort of some other kind of you know business idea that's on your mind or something you thought oh somebody should really do this or do it in a better way or yeah it's such an interesting one so i um have always worked on climate change and uh -huh. the climate crisis. Um, and there was a when I started there was a major gap in climate adaptation and resilience building. And so I'm, we'll be focused on this for, um, laser focus on this, uh, till we can build the climate adaptation market. Um, but the next thing I do will definitely still be in climate crisis, like solving the climate crisis. So I'll get back to you about my next big business. Yeah. I mean, it seems there's probably going to be enough, enough yeah. scope enough task and possibilities to build companies. Yeah. Though. Yeah. No, I mean, hopefully there's nothing more to do by the time <laughs> soon. Yeah. And then the last question we always ask, because I mean, we're primarily space podcast, is is about science fiction and whether you like science fiction and what kind of science fiction. And maybe let me just mm, yeah, no, I love this we're talking so much about climate, right? Have have you happened to read um, Kim Stanley Robinson Ministry for the Future yet? Yeah, of course. We we actually had a um, company um, book club on okay. that on that book. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm actually, we're, we, we're doing a couple of um, what's called like cli-fi um, uh, science okay. fiction, um, which is these, I love these kind of near future uh, climate um, uh, science fiction, which looks at these realistic sort of just following the trends that we have today through logically over the next several decades, and then envisioning what it would take to solve those things. I mean, Kim Stanley Robbins is at a very large and deep scale. Um, yeah. And um, my, someone on my team told me I had to stop reading these things, these books at night, because what I just do is envision what the, like, if Cloud to Street and some of the other kind of peer companies in climate tech were around in the, you know, 30, 40 year future that I'm reading about, how would the future have been different? Yeah. So besides Ministry for the Future, any any other sort of cli-fi works you guys have come across that you'd recommend? Yeah. I mean, um, Neil Stevenson has a, has a new one that I'm actually just like halfway in the middle of. Um, okay. uh, and I actually consider Parable of the Sower a cli-fi book. It's a um, Octavia Butler, like one of the one of the greats, um, and probably yeah. not what folks are thinking of when you think of sci-fi. Um, but it's it's a very intense, um, but I think like really beautiful book about what it feels like to be 
uh, in the the climate crisis. Okay, this is great. I, I learned a new word today, cli-fi. I'm going to start. Yeah, doing yeah that. there you go. <laughs> and I feel just like with startups that we need more climate startups, there's probably going to be a lot more cli-fi books in the future. Yeah, too. But... exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think they do really inspire people. Yeah, and, and they're important also to raise awareness and everything. But mm-hmm. in that way, and Bessie, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for all the important great. work you're doing. And, and all the best to you and Cloud Street. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And that's a wrap for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. Once more, if you enjoyed this, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. You can support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an interesting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. See you for the next episode.